0: If you wanna go fast, go alone. But if you wanna go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by The Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once a month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received, is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the Impact Collaborative. Again, that's info at real-leaders.com. Enjoy the show. And welcome everyone to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Maya Winkelstein, the CEO of Open Road Alliance. Maya, thanks for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So tell me a little bit about how you got into impact investing. What is it for listeners out there who have never heard of the term? And and why do you think it's important?
1: Yeah, Uh, impact investing is at its simplest form. It's right. The idea of putting money out there and looking for positive social good or positive environmental good or basically good things in the world coming back. Um, I think what's really, exciting about the term, though, is it is becoming a little more common, it is becoming more known. Um, And one of the the really important things, though, to think about impact investing and what makes it different from ESG investing or or other similar terms that you might hear thrown around is that impact investing is about prioritizing impact. It's about proactively seeking out impact and not just sort of a, a bar of avoiding harm but actually making sure you're doing good
0: am i how what attracted you to impact obviously it's got to be there's got to be a feel-good factor there's got to be something that you can align your skills and your values with what you do how did you get into impact investing
1: absolutely um so my background really comes from the impact side rather than the investment side so early in my career um, i worked in what traditionally had been the only place to really focus on impact, which was the nonprofit sector. Um, So I worked in international development. I worked for large NGOs, small NGOs. I did work in sub-Saharan Africa. I did work in Washington, D.C. A lot of the places that typically that more traditional philanthropic or development careers were. And honestly, when I was up and coming, that really was the only thing you could do. What has been really exciting for me as I progressed in my, my career, as many of my peers have over the last 20 years is, you know, 20 years ago, the term impact investing didn't exist. Right. Um, and so really coming into impact investing and my transition has really followed the market. Um, and I've just been really fortunate to be a part of this work and look at it and, and open road story in coming into impact investing. Um, is, you know, really part of that story as well. We started with charitable grants, making charitable grants to nonprofits, kind of your typical thing. Um, And we really quickly learned only after a couple of years of doing that, that we actually could have a lot more impact with the dollars at hand by making loans instead. Um, And that began literally two years after our first grant, we began experimenting with recoverable capital And now, fast forward nearly 10 years later from our first charitable grant, we actually have the largest impact fund for bridge loans in the sector.
0: Amazing. So for most of the social entrepreneurs, are you providing loans or are you investing in the organization?
1: Most of what we provide is debt. Um, So we're a short term bridge lender. Um, We don't do equity. Um, We're not venture capital. And it does put us in a different position than a lot of other investors that do, um, you know, turn themselves impact investors as well. What we found, though, is that you know, equity absolutely very important, and certainly social enterprise is out there. Whether you're talking about a solar company or you're talking about um, a renewable, uh, uh, other companies in renewable energy or in um, health or education or other impact areas need that access to equity. But there's a lot of equity out there. There's actually not a lot of debt. And if you ask any company that doesn't consider them impact first, that considers them fully for profit, if they could just survive on equity, every one of them will tell you no. So we're actually really proud to be one of the only debt providers in the space.
0: Amazing, so some of your uh, the, your clients, the people that you're you're making loans to, um, are, are they struggling with getting loans from your, you know, your traditional, uh, institutions? Uh, are they struggling with getting loans from other, uh, places that are not focused or are in the, the, no, if you will, of impact?
1: Mm-hmm. That can definitely be one of the challenges in general, um, particularly for social companies or impact com- companies in the global South. So if you're an entrepreneur in Kenya or Botswana or Peru or, um, Mongolia, it's really hard for you to access debt because typically the way you place you would go to get a loan is your local bank. Um, but the economic and political realities of a lot of those places do make it really difficult to get any loan um, and certainly not an affordable one. So that can be a, a challenge of the market as a whole. Um, what is even I think a little bit more special about Open Road and the Open Road Impact Fund, which is our, our impact investing debt fund, is that we actually specialize beyond generic debt specifically for short-term bridge loans. And I know that might sound a little wonky and and a little little technical, um, but it really is, it is a specialized product, but it's actually turns out to be a really critical one specifically for impact. And I'll I'll explain a little little more why. So short-term bridge loan, it's a loan, right? And it just means that it's generally short so it's not like your 30 year mortgage or 15 year this it's really most of our loans are 12 months or less. But what we so what we provide it's really about timing it's really when we come in so I'll use climate finance for an example right Um, according to the IPCC. uh, We need $1.5 trillion in annual financing in order to achieve our net zero carbon goals by 2050. The International Energy Association calls for annual additions of solar to reach 630 gigawatts by 2030, which is basically four times the record levels that were set in 2020. Yet, there is this thing about finance. If you imagine all those solar farms that need to get built, the problem is, is that in climate finance as it stands today, There's an inefficiency that is very common and that's essentially delays between investment commitments and project kickoffs. And this is a real problem Mm. because these delays, even if it's just six months, it directly threatens our net zero timelines because entrepreneurs have to then wait six or 12 months to begin their carbon reducing work. Mm. What open road does is we eliminate that gap. So we provide a loan when the question isn't if investment is coming but when we can provide that short-term loan that really accelerates impact and growth for the companies Um, and this basically allows climate entrepreneurs to begin their work now turn on the mini grid six months sooner and if you're in it for impact you know that's we we can't lose that time
0: and what size of companies are you are you working with Um, because, you know, obviously if you're a small organization and you're trying to find sources of capital, maybe a little bit more difficult, especially like you said, South of the hemisphere, what type of organizations are you working with? Could you provide a few examples for us?
1: Mm -hmm. So we work with organizations up and down the market. And that's another thing that really, um, is part of the impact side of our impact investment equation at open road. Um, so we make loans to companies with millions of dollars in revenue, and we make loans to companies that, you know, aren't great even yet. Um, and that's part of it, right? That is part of it, because exactly as you said, access to capital is one of the key barriers to really unleashing the potential of companies that can have impact. Um, so to give you a, another concrete example in the climate finance space, um, we've actually made two loans to a company called Husk Power. Um, and what's great about them is these two loans were a few years apart, and basically in those moments of step up where they're growing, right? This is a reoccurring problem in finance, so we were able to grow with them. Mm. So our first loan was $500,000, which allowed them um, to get to uh, in, to 100 mini grids installed, which actually made them in 2020 they were the first company globally to have reached 100 installed mini grids. Wow. Uh, and that was due in part to a loan we had made a couple years prior. Fast forward, and now we've been able to make them a million dollar loan so, in order to help them now scale access capital to scale their growth so that they can reach nearly 200 mini grids, bringing them even closer, closer to, to impact that scale.
0: It, it's fascinating. And so your theory of change essentially is to work with these social entrepreneurs south of the hemisphere who lack access to to funding, especially, you know, the U.S. dollar is going to go a lot further in Africa or in these these, uh, countries that you mentioned than it would here, you know, at home. And if they have a scalable venture that's a for profit, you know, it's going to be able to grow and also solve some of the most pressing challenges that we have when it comes to reducing carbon emissions.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, the dollar does go a long way um, in different markets, but um, I am going to throw you a little curveball because we actually don't exclusively lend uh, in the global south, we actually do lend here in the United States as well. Um, And, and again, we do that because we found that this scenario and this, this problem, it actually doesn't have anything to do with being in Africa or being in Latin America or being in Eastern Europe it's not tied to the geography, it's tied to the way that, that dollars move, or in our case, they don't move um, and need a little help to accelerate. But you are right that, that dollars can go further in the global South market. And that's actually one of the reasons why we've been scaling up our own impact fund um, and continue to bring on new investors every quarter so that we do have the capital in order to go, not just up the market in terms of size of company, you know but also to be able to serve all of the geographies that would benefit from this product
0: mike could you help us out for aspiring uh impact investors out there what, you know talk us through like a syndication or talk us through what pieces have to come together in order to make a deal happen
1: oh uh, it is so if you've ever bought a house um you can just think about all of the things that need to come together for that Love transaction it right you know you you got to get your home inspection first you got to look you got to decide you got to make an offer but then you get the home inspection and then the home inspection comes out and then you go into this negotiation and then there's a period where you can walk away from it without having any problem But then you don't have to, but then you need to get approved from the bank and you probably needed to get pre-approved before you even went house hunting. So you kind of knew how much mortgage you could afford. And then by that point, the interest rates and you're shopping for interest rates and you're like, oh my gosh, but now I can get 2.7 instead of 3.1 and that's going to save you a lot of money. And that's just for one $400,000 house. So now imagine you've got a $4 million transaction, or in some case, some of the the borrowers that we work with, the entrepreneurs we work with, we're talking about 20, 40, $50 million transactions. And it's not just you, the bank, and the person you're buying the house from. There's multiple investors. There's six of them involved. And two of them are government investors. So now take the complexity of getting a mortgage and add to that, the complexity of filing your taxes, Right, and you begin to approximate why these delays are there, you know, why sometimes it does take an extra six months or 12 months, even though everybody's agreed, I've agreed to buy, you've agreed to sell, I've agreed to invest, I've agreed to give you the loan. It, it sounds silly, but these, the bureaucratic or other unexpected delays really do have real life impacts on the ground in terms of people having payroll, meeting payroll for their employees, um, solar panels getting in the ground now or later. And even in other sectors that we work in like health and education, right? It's the difference between being able to open that school now or waiting 12 months. It's the difference between being able to open those health clinics now and provide access to healthcare or having to wait another 12 months. And those are real people and real impacts on the ground.
0: Right. I think that was a really good analogy. And I'll kind of stick on that as well in terms of housing. I mean, do you have a specific niche that you like investing in, Um, you know, for for housing markets could be multifamily, right? Single family uh, could be storage units, right? Anything like that. But when it comes to impact investing and you actually providing the debt to finance these operations, what type of operations are you looking into? What do you like?
1: So it probably won't be a surprise from the conversation we've had so far, but, but personally, and this is personal, not necessarily a ref- reflection of our, our organizational standards, mm. um, but I really am excited about the work that we're doing in the climate finance space. Um, you know, the, the threat of climate change is so large and so looming and so urgent, um, and it affects everything else right, if you care about affordable housing, if you care about health care, if you care about education, if you care about conflict and human rights, all of those things are going to be adversely affected by climate change if we can't get our act together in the next 10 to 20 years. Mm-hmm. And unlike some of those other challenges, which don't get me wrong, are true and legitimate challenges and also need our urgent attention, but poverty, Uh, issues and and these other societal blights they've been around for a long time Mm. I really hope there's a day when they're no longer with us but we there's no existential deadline
0: Mm.
1: climate change there's an existential deadline if we don't hit some of these science-based goals by 2030 by 2040 by 2050 we can't clean up our act later It, Mm. it will be too late
0: and I think what's also important is for investors or people listening to this is it's very difficult to understand what you're talking about when it comes to poverty, affordable housing, if they haven't been in these locations. Especially like, you know, like buying a house, like you, even in your yeah. local neighborhood, you gotta go see what's over there before you make that purchase. How do you communicate that with investors? Are these investors, have they traveled to the area? for you yourself, are you going to these locations, meeting the business owners? How important is it to get outside of the bubble?
1: So getting outside of your bubble at the outset certainly is essential, right? If you wanna solve a problem, you better make sure you understand the problem first. And what's interesting about our bridge loans and the impact fund is we didn't actually come up with that, that idea. We didn't sit here and say, hey, you know, what would be cool is if we could make loans that would also have an impact, but could still make us money, right? It wasn't investor driven. And that is, again, something I think that really stands out about our model is that our entire product line is actually was created and demand created through demand from our entrepreneurs. So we started with grants, right? Because that's what you're supposed to do. Right. Or that was at least the conventional wisdom. If you want to do good in the world, you give the money away. And as we were doing that for a couple of years, we started to hear from our our then grantees and we started to have conversations with them. And and one day we said, well, gosh, this, this sounds I mean, I don't have an MBA, but this sounds like it could be better solved with a loan. Like, would that be helpful to you? And they said, yeah, that would be helpful. And then fast forward another year, and what was crazy, as we started experimenting, is we said, well, okay, let's start giving people the choice. And you would think that folks, if they had a choice between free money and money they have to pay back, that they're gonna take the free money, right? Well, that's not what we found. Actually, people said, no, we, we want the loan. This is actually what we need. This is what we want. This is what is going to accelerate my business accelerate my growth and accelerate my impact. Because at the end of the day, these leaders, these entrepreneurs, they do want to run scalable, successful, profitable businesses. Mm. And having a loan that is designed to meet their needs, not to meet what I want as an investor, but really to solve their problems is much more valuable to them in terms of building their credit history and honestly just giving them the dignity of partnership uh, as, as an investor that I'm serving them, not the other way around. Uh, and so, yeah, that's kind of that's how we, we got into it and has what has fueled our growth ever since. And every time we make a change um, or think about how we could continue to evolve or continue to innovate with our products, that's where we go that's who we ask Um, we don't focus group investors and say what you want we go to our entrepreneurs and say what's missing that would make you grow even faster and be even more impactful and then we go and we say how can we change ourselves to meet that need
0: it makes sense yeah especially for entrepreneurs that don't want to give up equity in the organization and want to Mm -hmm. make decisions on their own and know the space let's say maybe better than a traditional investor would Uh, so it's a great service and work that you guys are doing for a lot of these social entrepreneurs around the world. When it comes to your perspective on debt, you mentioned earlier on, you know, you're, you're helping out with a lot of nonprofits, and you kind of made this transition into this area uh, from grants now to loans. From your personal perspective of debt, of capital, of using business to solve global issues, how has that perspective changed over time?
1: It has been an incredible ride the past ten years. Um, yeah, and it's been so fun because I, I really feel like there were things that we were saying even five years ago that sounded like crazy town, and now you got the CEO of BlackRock saying it. You know what I mean? Like it—it's it, the convergence of impact and investing, if you will um, has moved from, you know, two gentle rivers that are para Okay. They're over here. Now they're running parallel to each other. Hey, now they're commingling. Like, now they're just trains ramming into each other. Right. Um, and that is the future. You know, people sometimes ask me, what do you see as the future of the impact economy or the impact investing economy or the, imp- the future of impact investing. And I say, well, the future of impact investing is just investing, right? The future of the impact economy is, just the economy that is the path that we're on and not only is it the path that we're on but one of the reasons we are now on that path at an accelerated rate is because people are waking up and realize if we don't completely merge these if impact economy isn't just the economy again the the game's kind of going to be over for for us in terms of what we want as societies
0: and you know there's a large conference coming up called COP26, right? And on, under a month now, a couple of weeks away, global elites are going to be meeting there and trying to plan out and talk about their goals uh, You know, as they do and as they want to commit to. Do you think now is a great time to get an impact investing before that meeting? And what do you expect uh, to come out of COP26?
1: So I think it's always a great time to get into impact investing and... It's always a great time to get into impact investing, not to brand impact investing.
0: Mm.
1: One of the topics that I know is gonna be coming up uh, during COP26, particularly again, from the entrepreneurs, from folks on the ground, and especially from, uh, frankly, social justice activists uh, and indigenous activists and grassroots movements, which aren't just deeply tied to the climate change, but are really savvy and paying attention to the investments in climate, even as the ones I've described. And there's gonna be a lot of talk, I hope, about the distinction between impact investing and greenwashing. Um, So impact investing is great, but it's also, you asked before, like, how did we get into it? How do you get into, you don't just wake up in day and say, I'm gonna be an impact investor and I'm gonna get into this field. You do have to do your homework. You do have to learn thank goodness we aren't where we were 10 years ago. You don't have to make it up on the fly. You don't have to build the ship as you're sailing it. You can actually look around, find experts, find people who have been in this work for, for years. Um, the manage, Our managing director, Caroline Brissan at Open Road, she's the managing director of the Impact Fund. Her entire career since she got her MBA has been in impact investing. Hmm. There are people out there that, that have that expertise now. So you know don't try to self-teach your, yourself this um, get involved but go out and find someone that can help
0: so let's talk about kind of how you perceive esg investing versus impact investing i know you touched on that a little bit earlier um, but for your traditional uh, investment advisor you know they're going to be hitting on and excited about esg it's the new crave, even though it's been around for quite some time. Now, impact mm-hmm. investing is coming along and say, hey, I think we can do a little bit more. Could you explain the difference between your perspective between ESG and impact investing?
1: Yes. So I think of ESG as a minimum bar because ultimately what ESG is and it's what the G stand for environmental, social and governance. It's essentially a checklist and it's a checklist of a bunch of bad things right? Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't um, use child labor. (laughs) Don't manufacture arms or opium. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't uh, have exploitative pricing practices or, or things like that. It's a list of don'ts. And so ESG is great because it's essentially a negative screen. If you're applying ESG to your investments, it means that you're saying, I want to avoid the bad stuff. And I want to make sure that my dollars are not going into those bad things. That's fantastic. But here's the reality. Every investment that has ever been made in the history of the world has had impact. It's just that impact has been on a spectrum of negative, positive or neutral. So what ESG does is it screens out, hopefully if applied correctly, those negative impacts. That doesn't mean though that your resulting portfolio is proactively pushing for and investing and prioritizing the positive end of the spectrum. And that's really what we need, right? Um, And again, just to be consistent, going back to climate, it's we know it's not enough to just divest from fossil fuels, You also have to invest in solar and wind and other renewables or you end up with no power. Mm. So impact investing is I think of as a really as a positive screen. It's an intentional strategy and it's a strategy that, again, is going to prioritize impact and really put that forward, dare I say, close to, if not equal or more important than your financial returns, maximizing, maximizing financial returns. Not financial returns, just maximizing financial returns. Whereas ESG, I really see as a, just a negative screen of saying, I still wanna have as much returns as possible, but do as little bad as possible, which is not the same as saying, I wanna do as much as good as possible, but still make some money.
0: Seems to be the difference in tension. Uh, I think you explained that really well. Like ESG is kind of a risk lens for a lot of investors. It's the nose impact investing, much more intentional. Do you think like the large, you know, organizations? I mean, the big headwinds uh, of, of companies. You said investing in the future will be impact investing. Do you think they can not necessarily start all over again, but it's it's more? Do you think they could have a that much of an intention? to change their organization, to become an impact organization?
1: I think you have to have that optimism. Otherwise you're sort of stuck saying what's the point, right? Um, So I do have that optimism. Uh, I'm have my optimism is tempered with realism. Um, It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen on a dime. And it's frankly, probably not going to happen just through self-enforcement and self-regulation, as frankly, most things in our history uh, over time, especially in, in the history of the way our economy functions on a large systemic scale, it doesn't really actually happen because people just decide to do it differently hmm. unanimously. Um So I, I do think, yes, it will happen, um, but it is going to require over time additional things and maybe it's regulation um, that could be Tax regulation, government regulation—it um, also comes from the bottom mm-hmm. up, right? It's movements. It's how you think about major shifts in this, in even just our own country's his- history that had major economic implications. So think about the social justice movement, the racial justice movement, and the civil rights movement. Just here in the United States, with racial injustice, well, we know that one of the one of the most stark examples of discrimination against African-American and people of color in this country manifested through red lines, which was what? An investment policy about who got to buy houses where. Hmm. That was economics. That was business. That was banks deciding literally who was allowed to buy a mortgage where. Did the banks wake up one day and say, this is wrong, we're going to stop redlining? No right? The, the movements came from the bottom up. It came from the courts. It came from all of these other actors together. So ultimately, if I'm guessing where we're going to be 30 years later, it's going to be movement on probably all of those fronts. What gives me extra hope and optimism is that right now, I do think that the, the major shakers and companies, they do get it. Right, they. I do think that there is a desire for the outcomes. I think some folks are going to have a rude awakening about what they have to change in order to get there. Um, but I do think that, that a lot of the intention is genuine in terms of the different results that people want to see.
0: Definitely. Definitely. And I like what you're saying about the redlining and just the government intervention because it really stems from the loans, uh, the institutions, the people who are funding these movements and and creating prosperity within our own borders. You're in a different arena than I am. You are in the impact investing arena. Um, What's exciting you about future government intervention? Is it a carbon tax? Is it investments into specific industries? Is it uh, reducing regulations for loans in specific areas? What specifically about government intervention here domestically in the United States is exciting you right now?
1: I don't think I've ever attached the adjective excited to government uh, intervention or regulation. Really? Uh, so that might be that might be overstepping uh, the, the emotional attachment a little bit, but. You know, I think some some trends or some possibilities that I I do think would be positive and that I would support are several of the things you mentioned, you know, I certainly think. Carbon tax carbon cap and trade right having a governing a a uniform rigorous uh, uniform system for that is going to be incentivizing and disincentivizing carbon emissions in the United States on a federal scale. Has the potential, if done right, to be really transformative in a good way. Um, and not just, you know, from the oh impact side, you know, reduce carbon emissions, which I'm all for. But honestly, I think that has good reproduction repercussions for our country on the business side in the long term, too. Right? What do they say? Necessity is the mother of invention. All right, congratulations, you can't do this anymore. What does that mean? It's just it's going to unleash even more creativity and innovation than what we've seen seen to date. Um, so I think yes, I, I'm in, certainly in favor of a carbon tax or carbon cap and trade programs. Um, you know, I also think on on more of this the soft side. Honestly, everything our country has been going through in the last several years, um, as difficult as as it has been, um, if you you know believe in in. What Martin Luther King Jr. said is that the arc of history bends towards justice, um, and I, I do hold that, and in, in the optimistic side of me, um, that you know that the attention that we're having at all levels of society, including government, to hopefully have finally an actual, true, and real reckoning with the racial injustice of our past, with the wealth inequities of our present. If we can face those uh, and whatever role government plays in that, I do think our country will be for the better.
0: How how does that look like? Obviously, that, that's a that's a big uh, trending topic right now. Like, what would that look from a, a lending side? What changes could you make
1: from a lending side? You know, I think there are a number of things that. Are certainly not, or, or these are not original ideas. Um, the The focus of the entire country and lending is no different. Frankly, even impact investing is no different. The reckoning again with implicit bias, frankly, um, around racial and other. Uh, forms of, of implicit discrimination and just who gets access to capital, Mm -hmm. like how are you structuring this? Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, if you are investing internationally is all your paperwork in English, like who is that screening out? Mm. You know, so, okay. So only the entrepreneur from Nairobi who had the opportunity or the entrepreneur from, uh, may not pick an Anglophone country, the entrepreneur from Benin who had the opportunity, and the privilege to study in England, to learn English is going to be the one that can access your paper, can read your paperwork and not have to hire a translator, mm. okay. Little thing, even little things like that, um, let alone, you know, certainly more insidious biases, which we all have regardless of our backgrounds and, and who we are and how we're raised and where we live, it's just a function of the human brain, mm. um, thinks fast, thinks slow, uh, implicit biases think fast. Addressing those head on, um, both a, through a process, uh, certainly at Open Road, as many organizations with our team, right, as a people issue, as a conversation between individuals and people is really critical. And then really making sure that that is also reflected in our work. It's reflected in our underwriting standards, it's reflected in the accessibility of our work, it's reflected in if we're getting referrals. Who are we getting referrals from? If the people we're getting referrals from are look just like us, then what do we think is gonna happen? Right. And taking ownership and accountability over that too. Um, you know, I think is really critical to to creating, even if they're not sufficient and, and I haven't I haven't found anything yet that's wholly sufficient and then lets you say, okay, we're done, go home. I don't think that's possible. But it allows you to take a few more steps on the journey. And that's really what we all need. If we're constantly taking a few steps on the journey, um, at the very least, as they say, you, you're you not part of the problem.
0: Love it. I know, thanks for sharing your uh, perspective on things. And I was also curious to hear uh, about your stance on impact measurements. I mean, do you think it's worth measuring impact? Do you think that all these metrics uh, to, uh, show investors uh, really hold weight versus a return um, or is it more uh, focused on on both or, or neither do you need impact investments if you just believe in a company like energy uh, and renewable energies and things like that so what's your what's your take on impact investing measurements yeah
1: I, I think you do need some kind of measurement um, and if not measurement at the very least evaluation and tracking Um because of the reality of unintended consequences, right? So you can never just say, oh, like this is a good technology, mm-hmm. walk away with that. Uh, it's always going to do good. Because the reality is there's always unintended consequences. And sometimes, you know, we don't find out until later that those consequences were harmful. So I think there, I think measurement is important. Um, I think there's also a really important facet of impact measurement, which gets lost. And that's because impact measurement in so many ways is a qualitative exercise and not a quantitative exercise, Mm. even where quantitative metrics can, um, be accurate and help shed light. And the difference is, is that measurement, when you are measuring something, you've got to be really careful about whether you're measuring for performance or measuring for success. And the easiest way to understand these two different things is by putting it back in the financial returns world. So imagine this, you invest in a fund, a mutual fund, and you expect to get 7% financial returns. But at the end of the quarter, you get 5%. Well, that's a failure. Now, You invest in a different mutual fund, you expect to get 3% returns. Now at the end of the quarter, you get 5% returns. That's a wild success. One is an investment is considered a failure. One investment is considered a success, but the returns, the performance was exactly the same Mm. 5% in both cases. Right. Right. So. That translates into impact and if you're measuring something, whether you're measuring kilowatts of clean, renewable energy uh, that comes online, whether you're measuring the number of vaccines, COVID vaccines distributed in last mile uh, communities in sub-Saharan Africa, whether you're measuring the number of, of students who graduate from high school, whether you're measuring the increase in incomes to single, uh, single women in rural Mexico who own now own their own sewing machine and, and, can, can earn a living, right? Whatever it is. First, you gotta be really clear about if you're measuring performance or you're trying to determine success or failure. And then remember, if you're looking at success or failure, that's an expectation. And that's 100% sub- subjective. That's based on what you expected to happen at the outset. Mm. And Unlike the financial markets, unlike that five, three, five, seven 7% financial return, we don't have the data. We don't have the hundred plus years of actuarial tables to tell us what we should expect that isn't going to be very heavily informed whether we like it or not by our implicit bias and by our expectations and our subjectivity as human beings. And that right there, is one of the reasons that it's so hard
0: i totally get it and the thing that comes to my mind is like vc versus kind of what you were doing on the debt side of things you know people are just willing to to lend or not lend but invest you know millions of dollars into companies that have very high risk that may be oriented around impact or something else and maybe it's high tech or something like that but millions and millions of dollars are potentially, you know, wasted. I wouldn't say wasted because we want we want entrepreneurs to take risks, obviously, but you know, used and allocated toward these investments versus social impact. You said 1.5 trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so it, it's just a, a different way and a perspective to look at, you know, a financial return. And uh, one of the things that comes to mind when you think of impact investing and measurements is, well, how do we measure success in a business from an operational perspective? Mm-hmm not from a marketing perspective, but from an operational perspective, you know, from time so ever since the, the time, you know, the crack of dawn, uh, businesses has been, have been using, you know, ledgers, right, in a and yeah. l um, It uses one basic unit, which is either the dollar or whatever currency that you're using. Is there a specific unit when it comes to impact measurements that you pay close attention to? No, okay.
1: because what's the common unit between an education program, a healthcare program, and rewilding mangrove forests to increase climate resiliency for smallholder farmers in Sri Lanka, right. it's. I think it's it's really hard to do that across the board. Mm-hmm. However. I think this is where impact investing, you asked me before, what's exciting about impact investing, what do I like about it? It's that proactive strategy, right? So I cannot tell you what metric is the universal metric that everyone should follow and that, you know, should start showing up on all p and and be taught in every every MBA program across the, the country. Um, I, if it exists, uh, a, a crazy mathematician hasn't found it yet. Um, but... When you are developing your impact investing strategy and your impact investing thesis, you can be back to success versus performance, be really honest with yourself about what are the metrics that I can stand behind, that I can track that will be accurate, and what are the metrics that I would love to say, but maybe I can't, or maybe I can't yet. And so at open road in in the impact fund, for example, one of the metrics that we can track and that we do track and that we have tracked since our very day, even our very first grant back when we were doing grants 10 years ago is leverage. And that is because of our model, right? We come in with 500,000, 750, a million dollars to bridge incoming investments. So Husk Power, I mentioned earlier when we came in with our first $500,000 loan that helped them reach hundred mini grids, we were bridging to a $20 million equity close. Mm. So for $500,000, right. we were able to accelerate the impact of 20 million. Right. You can do the math on 500 to 20 million. That ratio right. is easy, traceable, verifiable. And we've tracked those exact those numbers for every single deal we've ever done and so based on that i can tell you with certainty that every dollar that open road impact fund invests and every dollar that we invest returns nine dollars of follow on funding kept on track of follow on funding leveraged and accelerated so our impact in terms of that acceleration of those incoming funds is 9x, and I can stand behind that number because where I know where it's coming from. Um, I can also count up, you know, how many gigawatts our, our borrowers have produced over time, and, you know, I can give certainly give that number as well. Um, but I can't tell you how many lives we've touched. That would be disingenuous.
0: Well, I think it's a great answer. I mean, there really isn't one right now other than, you know, the currency that you're using. And where does it show up, you know, in the ledger, in the P&L. It's exactly what you just explained. And that the fact that you can have an investment that is going to not only uh, change change lives or reduce carbon emissions or make the world a better place, but also generate return. Uh, It's a fallacy Mm -hmm. that a lot of investors have kind of come into this industry um, thinking the opposite. Uh, thinking of more of a social approach. Um, So it's been a very interesting conversation today. What's leadership's role in this, Maya? I mean, tell me about when it comes to the actual decision makers, the entrepreneurs, the intention, the people that that are going this route, how important is leadership?
1: Leadership is everything, right? Um, And it's not just because leaders often have authority and power which they do and which is a critical part of the equation that I think sometimes folks actually don't, don't give enough weight to because leaders don't want that weight on them. Mm-hmm. They want it to be, oh, not my, my uh, not to have that accountability and ownership. But leadership is everything because it is where decisions are made. And it is where priorities are set. And it is where culture is set. And it's not just where priorities are made and decisions are made and culture is set for your organization or the team that you're leading. Anybody who's been in a a leadership position for an amount of time understands that one of the most important places that leaders play is with other leaders, right? I can make decisions about open road and our team and our policies all day long. But the biggest influence I have is when I get together with CEOs and managing directors of other impact investing funds and we trade notes, hmm. What you do. That's what leaders do. Mm-hmm. And to understand that the community that quite Creates the norm setting that creates the expectation setting that that creates, and it can be soft and mushy on the culture side, and it can also just manifest into market standards. I mean, do you think that that any market standard, I mean, was the result of some magical, you know, th- there was no eleventh commandment, right? Like these. Interest rates did not start at a descendant period of time mm-hmm. given to us by a, a higher being. No, like it, it starts with what we choose to do, mm-hmm. and you know all the things we've been talking about today: where you choose to place your priorities, where you choose to to emphasize um, doing good versus not just doing harm, and understanding the trade offs in that. You're like, yeah, of course there are trade offs sometimes. Can you earn 25% you know doing short-term bridge lending from a financial returns perspective? Of course not. Can you still make some money? Yes. So you've gotta gotta have that give and take. And I, I do think that leadership um, you know, he, hump, leadership that is servant leadership, right, which leads with humility, humility which leads with vulnerability which leads with a clear understanding of what you can do and what you can't do, and a really honest look internally and frankly externally about every decision you make and what the pros and cons are, because there are always cons. Hmm. And I think real leaders aren't afraid to look those in the eye and go to sleep at night and own them.
0: I love it, from Aya Winkelstein. And I'm Kevin Ewers asking you to go out there Be authentic and always folks, keep it real. Thanks Maya.
1: Thank you.
0: All right, good people. And thank you for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast with Maya Winkelstein. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Now Maya, let's open it up to a few questions. And we had one that flew in during this show. So if you're paying attention, if you're watching this on LinkedIn or on Crowdcast, there's a chat box of a mobile right below. Or on the right side on your desktop, just ask Maya your quick question there. I'll make sure to ask her right now with the time we have remaining. Maya, the first question comes in from Julie, and that asks, "Are women as underrepresented on the debt side as the equity side?"
1: Hmm. Great question, Julie. Um, I guess there's a couple of different ways I could interpret that. Um, you know, women in terms of women on the investor side, um, so folks like myself and and my and Caroline and the other women on our team that are, are making loans and, and working on the finance side. Um, but you can also look at it, of course, from the, the borrower side of you know, who's getting the money. Um, where, where is that money flowing and is it going predominantly to men or women? Um, you know, I would say overall in the sector, and, and I don't have the precise statistics uh, off the top of my head, you know, but we have looked at this in generally and certainly on the recipient side, debt isn't really that different from equity. Right, so there is disproportionate flows of money to men. There's disproportionate flows of money to white entrepreneurs versus people of color and indigenous entrepreneurs. Um, so unfortunately, that that trend holds true. Um, in terms on the side of investing, I haven't, I don't think I've actually seen any specific. Numbers. Um, my assumption would be that it holds true. That would be just my guess in general, because finance, again, writ large, is, you know, by the numbers, still a man's world. Um, and I don't think there that debt in general is different from that. Um, what I can offer though is an interesting thing when we were actually looking at some of these numbers in our own portfolio. Um, it was really interesting on the gender question in particular. We actually saw that the number of entrepreneurs coming to us were pretty evenly split between uh, identifying as male and identifying as female. And we saw, thankfully, uh, through our our process that we were approving loans also proportionately to men and women, number of, of male entrepreneurs versus number of female entrepreneurs. However, when you looked at the amounts of money, we were approving proportionally but men were asking for like six or seven times what Mm -hmm. women Mm -hmm. entrepreneurs were asking for Hmm. so at the end of our pipeline more of our money was going to men but it wasn't necessarily because we were approving it more disproportionately it's because they were asking part of it is that they were asking for more more
0: It's really interesting. And, and so I guess I was going to ask you, you, know, how does your organization stay intentional about this? But you, you, you sort of already answered that. Um, what have you learned from the past year, especially with the social justice movement, about the urgency uh, to be much more intentional?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it, the, the, the moment in many ways speaks for itself. Um, you know, Open Road has certainly always been committed Um, to the principles of equity, um, racial equity, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, Like many companies, we had been working on those issues internally and working to improve and to hold ourselves accountable before um, the movement of 2020. Um, And at the same time, the movement, it did. It did bring a greater sense of urgency and attention to what we were doing and are we doing enough are we doing are we moving fast enough um and lots of conversations and and not all easy ones you know just even in our team and amongst our our staff Um, because again this is this is these are people issues you know these aren't just statistic issues of percentage approved and not approved and proportionality and disproportionality no these are you know these are human issues of how we're interacting as human beings Um, and so it, it has it's been it continues to be a journey for open road, I think there's some things that we've done really well on the equity front um, i'm really proud of our, our compensation policies and, and other policies that are built for equity. Um, and you know I think, like most companies we, there's also areas that we're still working on to get better.
0: Maya, I really enjoyed our conversation today. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find more information about Open Road or get involved?
1: Yes. Um, If you want to learn more, you can visit our website. It's www.openroadalliance.org or just Google Open Road Alliance and it should pop up right there. Um, And if you're interested in our, specifically our Bridge Loan Fund and the impact investing work, um, I encourage you to check out the Open Road Impact Fund, uh, and if you want to get involved further, you can contact us directly via our site, so please don't hes- hesitate to reach out.
0: Wonderful. For Maya Winklestein, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, and always, folks, keep it real. This episode, by the way, folks, is going to be edited, produced, and released to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, all those good places you like to listen to podcasts. So if you want to do us a favor and click that link in the chat box there, leave us a review, folks. That is what makes the difference from getting this message out there uh, to people on searches. And when they search for leadership, Maya Wickelstein shows up. So if you could leave us a review there on Apple Podcasts, we would really appreciate it. Hope you guys enjoyed the show and stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you, Maya. Thanks, Kevin. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders magazine, private member-only events and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a 100 dollar a year subscription. Hit the link in the show notes, enter in coupon code podcast20 to receive access to all of Real Leaders to get you to the next level. Thanks for listening to this episode and always keep it real.